Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Xu Yen Yu, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Today, we present a conversation between Dania Idris and Omar Ramadan. In this interview, Dania Idris and Omar Ramadan enter into an extensive, genuine, and hilarious conversation. They discuss their experiences and challenges as Muslim Arab writers in and out of academia. They also talk about how their positionalities affect how they interact with their various communities. They also offer exciting previews on their upcoming works, including their dissertations, as well as the theories and influences that those stories are built upon. Dania Idris is a Lebanese-Canadian author and a doctoral student in the Department of English at the University of Calgary. Her writing focuses on global literature, particularly Arabic speculative fiction. Her work often presents Arab Muslim women as agents in themselves outside of the harmful Western narratives. Omar Ramadan is a creative writing PhD student at the University of Calgary. His research and creative work focus on Arab diaspora literatures. He's particularly interested in systems of power and surveillance and the impacts of 9-11 on Arab and Muslim communities. He is the managing editor of Filling Station magazine. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody. I'm here with Dania Idris. And I'm here with Omar Ramadan. And we're going to have an in-conversation about our work and who we are as people, where we're located. We're going to start by talking about the place that we're in, and that is the Academy. So we're recording this at the University of Calgary, and then we'll probably move focus towards our work. The book that I'm writing, the book that Dania is going to be published very soon, just storying and storytelling and how we move through the world with that sort of 
knowledge and that sort of skill set, I guess you could call it a skill set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so to start in the academy, I guess, is an interesting spot for creative writers because do you ever find that there's just a huge conflict between creative writing, like your own writing practice, and then meeting the needs of the academy and being an academic? Hmm. Do you find that sometimes it like hinders your ability to write a little bit? Yeah, like how we have to sometimes try to fit the mold. Hmm. But then if I want to try to fit the mold, it almost becomes it becomes inauthentic. Right, it becomes like right. not the purpose of why no, I'm writing. Yeah, it, it just yeah, the writing is ruined if I'm not being authentic to myself. Because I know I can like write like what the academy wants me to write. <laughs> yeah, you just I have can... to bash your own people and then <laughs> Well it's not even like about bashing your own people, it's just like writing the most bland albeal shit ever right like <laughs> it's true though but you know what like does so well is especially i don't know because from the point of view of like a muslim woman if i was like this is why the west has liberated me right yeah that would slay i'd get a shirt for sure <laughs> it's very interesting how the arab like the muslim person is always an outsider in the academy oh yeah and people don't like, really and people don't realize mm. they're an outsider in the academy it's so hard to see or to find a lot of Arabs or Muslim people in graduate programs, mm. especially in the arts. Yeah, I mean, well, because like, like, the academy, there's so much applying for awards and applying for, yeah, uh, just it's so discouraging. It's so mm -hmm. so discouraging. And then, as a creative writer, like as a, just a, like a creative artist, you you never want to. I don't know. I don't want to fit into what the government of Canada considers to be worthy of funding. You know right, what I mean? It's yeah. just, it's discouraging. I think it's discouraging as well because just out of our own experiences with applying for sure, like we've seen other Arab people, especially at the UFC in, in this department, shot down just get shot down year every year. turn, every yeah. year after year. Like I'm in my third year of applying. I've applied six times. You've applied six times. So I'm like half your size you know, <laughs> um, in terms of applications. And I don't have any hope, I guess you could say, that our projects is what they want to see. So for context, my project focuses on a detective fiction and it's set in Edmonton and the Muslim community. It's about how this Muslim Lebanese detective moves through the Muslim community, but who also acts as like an outsider, insider kind of character because they're trying to solve the crime of a missing Muslim woman. The project tackles ideas of power and colonization and the post 9-11 and surveillance so like there's a lot going on it doesn't feel like people are ready to talk about that or to like read that kind of work not from this point of view at least not from this point of view and yeah again right so talking about how trying to mold ourselves towards what they want to hear mm. or what they want to read just becomes inauthentic and it's easy to be like yeah i'll just like write the most racist shit <laughs> about my own people and I'll get all the awards and all the money. Or you can like write about how you're liberated. <laughs> <laughs> and then that will win you all the accolades. It would, it would win me so many it's accolades. It's so much money. <laughs> but then it's like we're conforming to a white supremacist idea of ourselves. So yeah, it's, it's a fraught kind of space to be in as an Arab Muslim person. And it's, it's difficult to navigate those spaces because it feels like a lot of I don't want to say racism against Arab people is fine or whatever, but it feels like it's a lot more, people are a lot more okay with oh it. Oh my God, people are so okay people with it. People are so okay with it. And it like always strikes me as like, it's like, it's very odd. 
mind. It's like Arkansas people are like, well, it wasn't like intentionally. Like people say that so much about racism against Arab people. People like, say that so much. It, it is hurtful and it is like so intentional. Yeah. And we're just like the we're so easy to hate. I guess I don't know. People yeah. are just like so okay with the hatred against Arab people, yeah. Muslim people specifically. Yeah, yeah, and, and I feel like the academy amplifies that quite uh, a bit. Absolutely, because, just because of the space that we're in. I wonder like how much nuance is given to other classes, whether it's like poli-sci or history or like language studies. Because like we were talking about, like there's like not a lot of nuance in, in a lot of like translation work. Yeah. Or like the nuances are always lost. Uh, so like, for example, like Mahmoud Darwish's poem, I can't remember which one. I think it's like number... Uh, was uh, it The Passport? I'm not sure if it was The Passport, but like there was a, there was a poem that he's like writing about like the, the, the forest or... Right, and then they translate it to Olive Grove or something? Yeah, they translate yeah. to Olive Grove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but the Arabi says forest, and like forest is different from a grove. It's very different. It's, there's yeah. a, a huge... It was the Ghabi, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a different connotation. So inadequate. The translation work, I guess we need like a, what do you call it, when there's just like a whole bunch of works that come out, like like Japanese translations. Right. Japanese books that are coming out in translations right now, they're great, and they're right. like just killing it right now. Right. We need a... a a like, wave like a revolution yeah. yeah and i think that's like one way where i at least myself i try to keep things not translated or yeah. I keep things untranslated. so like i wonder how you approach using Arabic or using the language that's not english this is the question that haunts me every day so as you know i've had a long and fraught relationship with using Arabic in my work so i always i do i do try and have like how to be phrases and stuff and words that just like don't translate or like in that one story my box of cats that story where i have right. the the Mar'aydi song right you can't translate that it ends with like eat my farts basically it wouldn't translate mm-hmm. so i like write it out in like the english alphabet at first i was doing italics mm-hmm. because it looks i guess more like how to be writing but then we had that conversation with Rain where Rain was like, yeah, just don't do italics because then you're like, you know, ostracizing the actual language. And now I'm thinking if I had put it in like the actual Arabic alphabet, just the Arabic alphabet is hard to do in word when you're like mid because <laughs> it reverses all the writing and then it doesn't make sense, obviously. And also being like part of the diaspora, a lot of us don't know how to read the alphabet. Mm. I mean, I do because Dima, my savior, um, helped me a lot. <clears throat> Dima is the one who illustrated my book, by the way. Dima Bouchaban. She's the best. <laughs> Shout out. Shout out. <laughs> it's really tough because, like, my own cousins wouldn't be able to read that, even though it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's just such a hard language. What about you? Do you have a preference on, like, what alphabet to use? Or because I know where you stand on italics, and I think we stand in the same place now after my journey with italics <laughs> I mean, at least yeah. i never did the glossary for me it's it's pretty cut and dry mm. like i think my work has an audience for me i don't translate i don't have the italics yeah because i'm also using words so i i resort to just using adabizi or arab english Adabizi. Yeah. Adabizi. for um, those who don't know adabizi is what we do when we're like texting or so you're like writing arabic with english letters and numbers so it looks unhinged but it works yeah yeah we know what we're saying <laughs> <laughs> my uh, mom hates Arabic. Really? she's like she's like this is the end of the arabic language <laughs> actually i think it's 
I think it's actually very interesting because because I can see it. Yeah, I can see like the purists on one side being like just textonality, but like people don't know how to script. Mm -hmm. People who've grown up here might not know it. Mm -hmm. Also, if you have like a keyboard that is the English alphabet. Oh yeah, if you only have the keyboard. I mean, I have both how to be English keyboards, but. But I mean, I, I guess when it started, it was like in BBM days. Was it was the BBM big days, days yeah. yeah. So you had this like the buttons. Mm-hmm. So if you if you had an English phone, it was in English. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, so like right now I'm using Adobe like in my novel that I'm writing currently. So I have two families, one that's like immigrated a while ago and their kids are born here. And then one's like new immigration, the kids are born back home. I've been trying to grapple with how to show the language shift mm-hmm. and to show how language is used in different households. The one that's like immigrated here a long time ago and the kids are born here, I have the mother strictly speaking out of me all the time. And the kids answering and in English. And the kids answer in English. My household. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a lot of diasporic households where yeah. it's like that. Yeah. Where the kids only speak English or they won't respond in Arabic. So I have you know, the mother talking and the kids mm-hmm. responding in English. And, and that's my family too now, a lot like me converse mainly in I mean whenever I try whenever I do talk to my dad I try to speak as much Arabi as I can but I feel like the Arabi that we grew up is, is very conversational rather than technical so there's a lot of gaps in my Arabic vocabulary oh my okay so for those that don't really know much about the Arabic language we have spoken language that is really different from the written language like basically two different languages so if you grew up but didn't get educated in Arabic you don't know technical Arabic and I'd be like I'm terrible I'm terrible at it <laughs> yeah, so like I can't have a full conversation about like I don't know what the Arabic word for decolonization is, for example. No, like know. any of that type of yeah. language, I wouldn't yeah, be like able that to. Technical academic jargon. Yeah, it's very yeah. I completely blank. Same, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I have that going on, and you know, in my novel, but I also have the ones that have immigrated here speaking in English, or not written in English, but I have like the dialogue cues. I say that once. Mm-hmm. And then I'm assuming people will pick up that the rest of the conversation is in Arabic, unless if I say it's in English. From what I've read of your piece, I find it very clear when they're speaking Arabic when they're speaking English. But I'm also, I hate dialogue tags. Okay, but I think in this case it's useful. Because like I'm following, I forget his name, he's an indigenous author. I think it's called Indian School Days, Basil, Basil Johnson. And in his book, it's like very clear that they're not speaking English. Mm. And... He uses like the dialogue tag to indicate that they're speaking in a different language. Mm-hmm. And then you can just assume that the rest of it is also in that same language. So it's like just one dialogue tag and then mm-hmm. it just continues. And then I'll have like the other character, whose name is Selim, whenever he's speaking, or whenever if he speaks and he doesn't speak, that he responds in English. Right. And so it's like there's a lot of dialogue tags, but when they're there, they're very purposeful. Do you ever read, like, when you're writing, are you ever like, what would a non Arab person read this as, or do you just kind of not care? Yeah, I feel like audience is a very big question. So you're going to say you think about audience a lot? I think about audience a lot. I Um, can't. I can't think about audience. I'm like, I find it just crippling. Well, I mean, I think it's in the back of my head. I'm not saying that's in the forefront of my mind. But at the end of the day, it's like, this is the story I want to tell. And this is the only way that it can be told. And if the audience doesn't know how to be, then, well, I mean, the story, the story will still be the story and you can still read it. And you'll still understand the story, but you might not pick up on everything. Not everything is meant for you to read it, right? Especially if you're just a single, you know, one language person. Um, but single, only those monolingual. <laughs> those 
<laughs> just like if you're mon- if you're yeah if you're monolinguistic but then the story is very obvious yeah. like what i'm saying when i'm writing in the story is mainly in english right it's not all gonna be in Arabic, it's all, all gonna be in english but like the nuances might be lost if you're well some of the nuances that happen in the conversation will be lost for sure because you don't read it and you don't understand it but uh but yeah audience is it's there but it's not like my focus yeah because like i know your book is very it's very lebanese specific yeah right? and like i understood everything yeah right and i wrote the introduction uh, <laughs> oh yes my introduction is the done most by beautiful introduction it's, it's <laughs> incredible i actually haven't read it sorry you haven't read it <laughs> the, the audacity but the story is in there i feel like it doesn't feel like an audience is considered it really sense. isn't yeah I i don't mean that i don't so if somebody asks me what the audience for my books are i'm like hopefully no one <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hopefully people will read it I know but also I don't want them to <laughs> it's the it's the conflict of being me because your book is very I don't say it's your family's experience some of it some of it some of, some like, of the stories some, one of the stories is fully my mom another one of the stories is my own kind of experience like a fictionalization yeah like basically. a fictionalization of your, of your family and your yeah. family's life so like how do you change all their names <laughs> well yeah of course but like how do you somebody that writes about those experiences tackle the white gaze for example like how do you tackle the idea of a white reader having insight into that sort of life or into that into these stories you know i really didn't think too much on that when i started writing these stories it was like kind of a therapeutic delving into my own like ancestry and just playing around with stories that my grandma told she used to tell us i wasn't really thinking about white people i was like just trying to understand my own history i guess because Mm -hmm. i i don't know as somebody who like grew up here i had a big conflict with Mm -hmm. racial identity where you know i went to a really white school there was like a lot of I like resentment. I was like, I want to be white. There was like so much guilt in me too because my faith has always been quite strong. But then my like rage against my own. So, anyways, this was like a, a kind of exploration of my own history. And then I recently read this book called it was like a graphic novel. And it was called The Arab of the Future, and it was this experience of this kid in the Arab diaspora, kind of similar to my own experience. I was thinking about that some of the comments about it. And there's a scene where a bunch of kids kill a puppy, so kind of similar to spoiler alert. There's this story in my in my collection where there's a, an incident similar to that, which it's it's quite common. And I mean, it's very sad and fucked up, but it happens, mm-hmm. and especially in a place in the world where there's just like a lot of violence. So when my mom had this kind of experience, there was like the brewing civil war and all that. So, but the comments that that book received were kind of like Arabs are animals basically and it was Mm. just like so devastating to me because I know that I have that in my own writing and I don't want people to look at it and be like I knew Arabs were disgusting because that's not really the point of it so uh, after reading that graphic novel and kind of seeing the things that people were saying about it it really I was like actually quite distraught Mm. to a point where I was like we can't tell a story without being the enemies of our own stories so I felt so awful after after that experience and then mm-hmm. yeah I, I don't know I don't know how to really come to terms with that because mm-hmm. at first my biggest thing that I thought about a lot was judgment from my own family mm-hmm. because they're you know Arabs are judgmental my mom and my sister oh my god so I was like <laughs> you know when I first wrote it I, I wrote it for my master's thesis and I kept having this repeated nightmare where I was defending 
my book in front of my mom and my sister. Mm. And it was the most traumatizing thing in the world. They were just asking all these questions that I could not answer because they ask the most specific questions. If you're telling a story, they're like, and how was her hair done? What was she wearing? I'm like, I don't know. They're like, anyways, my family's very judgmental. So that was the thing that I was thinking about when I was thinking about audience because I was using their stories, right? Mm. But yeah, yeah, so the, after reading that book and looking at the the reviews of it, I just, mm. I was like, fuck. That's very interesting. Yeah, just like what you said, that we become the enemies even in our own stories, right? And, mm. and I think like a big part of that is is that the Western civilization mission Oh, the civilizing of the savage or of the heathen or whatever, like, didn't work in the Middle East very well. really didn't. (laughs) Their colonialism made us worse. (laughs) We're so stubborn that you can't even colonize us properly. Because, like, we all still speak Arabic in the Middle East, right? You know, like, Lebanon, I think French is a second Mm -hmm. language. It is the second official language, but I, I gotta say, Lebanese French is not French. (laughs) <laughs> I'm proud of it. It's, yeah, so it's almost like Quebec, kind of. It's even worse. <laughs> and so it becomes like almost this thorn in the side of the West, where it's like, we couldn't crack that. We could destabilize the hell out of it, but we couldn't crack it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's, there's definitely a lot, a lot more nuance that we can get into here. But I want to take it back to the question that I asked earlier about family and writing about family. Like, well, I mean, you talked a little bit about judgment from your family as well right so it's and and i feel that on a deep personal level so like how does your family not affect your your work or affect your work like what kind of input does your family have because like we have the dynamics of academia telling us what we should be and how we should be right Mm -hmm. and then we're like saying no and then you have like family being like this is what you should do this is how you should be and then we're like saying no and then it just feels like we're on sort of island where it's like well i'm not gonna make you happy i'm not gonna make you happy what are we even doing here yeah trying to make ourselves happy i guess so it's like who is our audience then (laughs) i guess we're going back to this idea of audience i don't know so for me i think my writing is so closely tied to my wild unhinged Mm. mental health so i'm dyslexic and i grew up doing i was in french immersion Mm. as a kid and then i kind of grew up at my grandparents house i was speaking arabic and then i did arabic classes at the mosque Mm -hmm. and as a result in school my teachers were like she shouldn't do arabic because she's writing shit backwards (laughs) you really think the teachers would have been like maybe she's dyslexic but they were like no no Mm -hmm. so i have like such a confused way of looking at language and Mm -hmm. when i write it's just like feels like I'm untangling all these webs inside my brain right. where I'm like I'm trying to process my own thoughts. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the times my audience is like myself. It's hard because by the time you read the version of the book that you read mm-hmm. has been edited right. 85 times right. by other people. I guess the like the version of my writing that comes out of me when I'm actually writing is mm-hmm. so drastically different from what the polished thing is right so when i'm writing i'm never actually thinking about audience mm. maybe audience comes more through editing i don't know if you feel the same way but i never ever think about audience when i'm writing mm. but you're not as much an editor no i just write you just write yeah <laughs> like when i i usually is yeah. you write but like while thinking yeah i just do like a stream of consciousness dump of pages and then go through it i'm like that doesn't make sense that's unhinged Mm. and then i kind of take that stuff out so sometimes i'll have like i mentioned my writing comes up and if it's too much like her then i later on take that out because it just seems (laughs) it seems rude well i mean i think we can move on to talking about how because our work sort of flies in the face of what 
is expected or wanted out of academia, which is cells. Like safety cells. Safety cells. Safety cells in the academia. I feel like if we pretended to be white people writing about Arabs, that shit would be bomb. Oh, probably. We shouldn't say bomb when we get deported. We will. (laughs) (laughs) Back to Lebanon. But like the idea of like safety is what academia is comfortable with. That's why it keeps perpetuating the same project. Funding goes in a certain direction. Sure. And we just see a repetition of a lot of the same topics. The same topics, the same projects. But yeah, safety, safety cells, safety cells big. Even like when people kind of claim that their projects aren't safe. They still are though. They still are. There are some things that academia is like very uncomfortable talking about or, you know, supporting. supporting. This is, this is another thing that I really struggled with in my writing. Right. Is talking about how awful Mm. and patriarchal our society can be. Right. But in a way that doesn't criticize us as human beings or criticize our faith or anything like that. But we do need to criticize the really toxic aspects of our culture. Yeah, Um, I agree. So that fine Mm. line there where you don't want white people to come in and be like, see, they are vicious. It turns into, um, I forget what his name is. Um, He talks about the national narrative and how people of color, when they write something, it becomes like the focal point yeah. of the cult, like, what's that word? <laughs> they become the person to go to. They go to, like, they become the spokesperson. Yeah, they become the Their spokesperson for an entire race. For, and that's an, just for not, an entire experience. That's not, like, yeah. and that's something that I really, really didn't want to. Yeah, I, I don't, that's, yeah, so like when I'm writing as well, it's like, I'm not writing the story of landed immigrants or, you know, first generation yeah. Yeah. Lebanese people. I'm writing a story. In that. Yeah. And yeah. so I tried to have some complexity there. Yeah. I don't know if I succeeded, but this is again, when I read the reviews about that era of the future graphic novel, where I was like, yeah. wow, white people really don't take things the way that I would have taken things. Right. And that's just something I gotta accept. I know. Yeah. There's a lot of like nuances that are lost mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I feel like when people, I feel like there's a certain type of person, there's a certain type of readership that's like out there to have their biases and their ideas validated. Yeah, absolutely. It's so like when, whenever they're like, oh yeah, look how this person writes about Arab, this must be, again, the national narrative yeah. rather than a narrative. Yeah, that stresses me out a lot. <laughs> and it stresses me out as well. Um, yeah, how do I balance that? Because like, I remember I was present- I presented a little bit of my story at FreeX in August. Mm. So I read some of my story there. And like I prefaced it by talking about how I don't want my story to be read as the national narrative. I don't want to be the spokesperson for all of the Lebanese people in the Dude, world. Right? Like, or in the West. The worst or all the Muslim people in the West, right? Because like oh. I didn't grow up I didn't grow up in a national kind of space, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, You grew up with, like, just a conglomeration of very different cultures. conglomeration of, like, the Muslim world. But even if we talk about, like, the Lebanese national narrative, Uh talk about a people that is more diverse in such a small space than the Lebanese people. And then this is so much pressure as a Muslim woman and Uh a Lebanese woman because you have... People that are just like ready to attack me, I don't wear a hijab. Yeah. So people are gonna be like, you don't understand what it's really like to be a Muslim woman, and I'm not. I I don't understand the like mm-hmm. the perspective of a hijabic woman. We have we are very diverse people. Like yeah. where there are so many different experiences. 100%. And so I I feel a lot of pressure there because I'm like mm-hmm. people are gonna hate me on both sides. Like yeah. I'm like white people are gonna be like she doesn't fit our 
feel that Muslim women and Muslim women are going to be like Shazam or yeah. Muslim men more accurately. Oh my god, Muslim men on Twitter. It'll be like Muslim men. Chill. Just stop <laughs> judging what Muslim women are doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're both falling asleep right now. We're like <laughs> hungry or something. Maybe a little bit hungry. I mean, the Timbits didn't plug the hole. <laughs> didn't fill in the gap. That's a good segue. Because like, like academia is always talking about filling in gaps, uh-huh. filling in holes. When you're doing like your applications and stuff, they're like, what, <laughs> what gaps, gaps are you? Yeah. you? yeah, so like, what are the gaps here that we're trying, or at least that you're trying to address with your writing or with your research? Okay, so I right now, for my dissertation, it's taking place in a psychiatric facility in Dubai, and it's got like a whole lot of different perspectives going on. So I'm trying to address talking about mental health in the Middle East, um, particularly women's mental health, but in kind of a productive way, not really a critical way, because mm. there is a lot that we just haven't, as, as a community, mm. maybe we haven't had the space because we're constantly being re-dramatized in right. every way, shape, and form. Sure. And like as somebody who's dealt with a lot of mental health issues and have been incredibly pleasantly surprised by how good my family has been at like helping me right. I want to show the complexities of, of the women's experience most of women's experience yeah revealing kind of where we're at and where we're headed in uh, mental health care and the representation of Muslim women in literature and speculative fiction specifically so right. it's like a sci-fi borderline cyberpunk text but now that all, like that cyberpunk video game came out and then that show oh, came yeah. out people are now like cyberpunk and I'm like no 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 it's not that kind of it's cyberpunk not, it's more like a mythpunk situation right because yeah. I use a lot of folklore and like mythology there's like jinn going on as usual usual. Um, because my understanding of mental health issues has a lot to do with kind of superstition Mm. because of just my own experiences with that stuff but this is another thing about like being in the academy and having to write proposals and stuff it's kind of like pick out the most traumatizing aspects of your work and display them yeah and i find that incredibly problematic like shirts application having that like new section on it yeah, the... Perform your trauma section. The, what's it called? It's like asking you, like, how does your work benefit, like, minorities? Or mm-hmm. It's like EDI, like an EDI thing. Yeah, but the way that it's framed yeah. is just so f- wrong. Yeah. There's all this talk about, like, decolonization and EDI. Um, it's like 80% dog shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like... I don't know if I believe decolonization can happen in the academy. I don't believe EDI is something that can happen in the academy. I believe that there's moments where we can address certain gaps in equity, diversity, and inclusion. Oh yeah, that was um, what we were talking about, gaps. Yeah. <laughs> um, where we can address those things and we can talk about those things, but at the end of the day, the academy is still the academy. It's called the ivory tower. Like, how do you dismantle systems? I think there's like another article that I was reading and it was like talking about how decolonization has become like a metaphor. It's Did like, you give your land back? <laughs> I've taken it completely out of my CV. Like, I don't, I don't consider what I do to be quote unquote decolonization. Yeah, I do. I just can't say it. It feels so disingenuous. And it's become times. like kind of a buzzword where it's, it's like, become like a buzzword. you throw it in and yeah. you're like, I'm decolonizing. What does mm-hmm. that mean? What are you doing? We're, I don't know, our applications and stuff really ask us to rely on buzzwords, though, like, mm-hmm. 
people love anti-colonial, decolonial, uh, what else? UFC's obsession right now is entrepreneurial thinking. Mm-hmm. I feel like the university's push to, to monetize our research, like how can you sell yourself and sell your work is so contrary to what Decolonization. Yeah, yeah, so yeah it's, exactly. it's become like a struggle for me. Whenever I see like decolonization, they're like, well, we're doing EDI or and it's like, great, cool. But what does that mean? What does that look like? Like in our department, there's been strides to make first year courses include like an indigenous text, right? But then it just becomes to- so t- like there's it becomes like a tokenistic token- kind yeah. of thing. I just don't think it's fruitful because the system is always going to lean into its white supremacist foundings. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right? The foundation of the, the foundation of the academy is based in white supremacy. So, like, how do you decolonize that? You can't. The academy will eat itself first, or it admits that it's racist. Yeah, it's true. That's where community and community building becomes so important. So like this competition that we're having, the friendship that we have, like taking it outside the walls of the academy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Because that's where decolonization actually happens. Oh yeah, like the conversations that happen beyond what you're actually funded for. (laughs) Yeah, beyond academia. And I keep coming back to funding because the money talks, right? Where the money goes is how you know what the academy really supports. A lot of people expect when we talk about our work, because it is something that we're really passionate about, we care about, obviously. Mm-hmm. Feels like talking about money is so taboo. Yeah. Because people are like, you should be doing this regardless of the money. And, and that's easy to yeah. say if you have money, but oh my God. <laughs> like, I've worked some awful, awful jobs to get through university. Right. And yeah. mm-hmm. it bothers me so much when people are like, well, it's not about the money. It's always about the money. Yeah. I don't want to be a billionaire, but where the university puts its resources shows mm. what they care about. Yeah, and that's another part of decolonization, the mm. conversation that nobody wants to have. Like, you can claim that you're, you know, a decolonial scholar or whatever, but then, like, how do you affect community outside the walls of academia? Mm-hmm. How do you interact with community outside the walls of academia, outside the ivory tower? Right. What's your positionality outside of the ivory tower? Right? right, outside of academia, outside of all the funding that you've gotten, outside of Shirk, outside of Killam, outside of whatever other you know prestigious awards that you've won, like where do you stand with the community outside this place? Yeah, right, and that's where decolonization happens. It's the community. It's not in the every tower because the every tower is the every tower. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally called the ivory tower. It's made out of elephant tusks. Do you think about like decolonization when you're writing? Absolutely. This is tough because I think this is another place where your proposals and stuff, mm-hmm. you're always expected to use that kind of language. And I hate it. I don't want to have these like broad strokes covering my work as mm. she's a quintessential decolonial writer. Like I'm not. Right. I'm just writing stories. Yeah. I think my work does the work it does. Mm-hmm. But I think it's kind of reductive to mm. use these big like umbrella terms to right. describe because I don't know you're right it is a community it's a community endeavor and, and my own my work on its own is not doing it's like what the engagement with my work does if that makes sense it's tricky because like I never I wasn't introduced to the idea of decolonization until I got to the or I got to the PhD I yeah. guess right like it's oh. Like, it's definitely an academic term. Yeah, you know yeah that's I mean? the thing, is right? that you it's, don't think about that stuff until you're in this pool. And then, it. yeah, until you're here, and it's like, oh, this is just, like, being anti-racist and being community-focused. 
still just kind of what you were doing already. Yeah. And, but now it's like been labeled. And, but it's not been labeled yeah. and monetized. And monetized. And monetized. Yeah, again, much like you, I don't want to paint my work as like, oh, this is like, he's a decolonial scholar, like that sort of thing. It's like, I don't, I feel like that's such a slap in the face of people who are actually undergoing like oppression and mm-hmm. colonialism mm-hmm. or ongoing colonialism or settler colonialism. And it's like, yeah, and yeah. this is another thing, um, writing from the point of view of the diaspora, is like, we left. And well, I didn't leave. Well, yeah, sorry. Our parents, was, left. Our parents <laughs> left. As much as that, like, it sucks and it's sad. Yeah. It was also a huge, we wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't be here if my parents hadn't left. Oh, like, definitely. It's such a complicated feeling yeah. to deal with. Yeah. Because you've got, like, this guilt. I don't know if you guilt of like leaving and then being able to write about hmm. about this stuff but then being like well I haven't I'm not in it I'm not in the, the trenches so to speak right mm-hmm. so I got this guilt and then I'm like do it do I have the right to talk about this am I doing mm-hmm. work that is like am I benefiting from and I am benefiting from immigration right I don't know man it's it's very complicated to think about our identities as like well First generation, second generation, I don't know. Depends who you talk to. Yeah. Lebanese people in Canada. Because at the end of the day, like indigenous people were pushed out for immigration. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So um, we've got like this double. So it's. Oh, it's just so yeah. many layers. So many layers of, yeah, of like a shitty feeling. But at the same time, I don't know if I feel guilty for being here. It's like. I don't know. I was born here. <laughs> My guilt is like a survivor, survivor's guilt. Of like oh, okay. I see. The people back home. Right. You know, like so much family back home. Yeah. They're still getting, they're having trouble buying bread right now. Like right. That. Yeah. And then I'm here and I'm yeah. doing this PhD. Right. And they're like yeah. busting their asses without electricity. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like a poser sometimes, even though I'm not. I'm not. Right. I don't know if guilt is the right word I would use for myself. It's more of just. A constant contemplation, I guess you could say. Mm. Like a constant localization or a constant excavation of... It's a good way to be. Sorry? It's a good way to be. Like, yeah. I just, I'm always guilty about everything, so... <laughs> right. Because, like, there's only so much that you can be held accountable for as a person, like, born here. I think that's part of, like, decolonial practice. It's like, hey, who are you in relation to the land? Who are you in relation to? Indigenous people on this land, mm-hmm. and then like recognizing that me being here and living here is because Indigenous people were were ousted, yeah. were killed, benefiting from were their... benefiting from their genocide, yeah. yeah, and being in constant reflection of that, and then and then that will manifest in our work. I think that's very important to continue to think about. So yeah, I don't know if I I would paint my work to be decolonial. I would say it's just more. Of yeah, I'm just telling stories, much like yourself. So I was wondering if we could like frame the next part of our conversation around this quote from this book titled uh, In Research Through, With, and As Storying by Louise Gwyneth Phillips and Tracy Bunda, um, who argue that stories are embodied acts of intertextualized transgenerational law and life spoken across and through time and place. In land of the everyday and every time, stories, whether those that are told of our origin or of our being now, all carry meaning, a theorized understanding that communicates the world. 
So I'm wondering if we could talk about this idea of story and storytelling as intertextual and transgenerational that are spoken across through time and place. So like, how does your work relate to transgenerational storytelling or intertextual storytelling? I mean, it relies so heavily on stories Mm. that I hear just like oral storytelling Mm. um, from my family. So there's just, it's always based in already existing stories because I think folklore and mythology and things like that, they carry a kind of meaning already in themselves. And horror, for example, it's always kind of got this negativity to it. So I find it really fun to use it in kind of a way that subverts that expectation. So the bringers of horror in my work are often young women. It kind of becomes empowering. Mm. And like monstrosity is kind of an empowering trait. Mm, so, you know, the Huda yeah. is like often, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. But no. in my writing and in my kind of personal view of the world, I, I love the Huda. I love mm. the, the idea of this like... Yeah monstrous woman right yeah because like i guess like what i'm trying to experiment with is like in my novel is combining folkloric narratives in the west and how they manifest that's like something that i I love to do as well so like the novel that i'm working on so i'm trying to incorporate both folkloric elements from like the arab world but also folkloric elements and storytelling from the west itself because like i also grew up with like I grew up with uh, the Grimm's uh, sorry the Grimm's yeah so like the Grimm's Grimm's. brother stuff so like I'll have like the Bagman or Abukis and the Ule I had like who worked in tandem with the Bagman do they ever have like Mm. heroic moments or are they purely like traditional in their evilness they're yeah so I'm trying to complicate things a little bit they're just people I guess you could say about that but because it's from like the kids and how they might see these people that are in their spaces. So yeah, so they manifest in these like, so like the bag man manifests as this uh, social worker and the Uli manifests. actually great. Social workers are kind of abusive. They're kind of like, a, yeah, they're kind of the <laughs> apprehension of children and that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, they're kind of yeah, they're bag people. And so the Uli is also a social worker and like right now in the first like edit I have her as also like a member of the community. So I'm like experimenting with how that would that would look like in terms of but I also have like another scene where a little flashback scene to where they try to go into an underpass and they find this dead person but his feet are sticking out from yeah, underneath the tent. Yeah. So it's very like Dorothy. So Wizard like, of Oz, yeah. Wizard of Oz, right? So like I also grew up with these Western narratives, right? Excellent. So like I'm trying to like just bring the two together, like the two folkloric elements together. And I think that's where the Jerry Cant kind of helps too. Yeah, like, yeah, that'll be like kind of like the Alice in Wonderland sort of thing where they like go into the Jerry Cant and yeah. then it's just Haraj and Maraj, right? It's mayhem. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so yeah, there's like a lot of... I'm very excited for you to finish that book. Me too. <laughs> I want to read it. And I want to write it. Um, write the introduction. <laughs> you can do that. Up. There's a lot of play that we can happen between our own folkloric sites yeah. and the Western sites. Yeah. As you're talking about Frankenstein, about that comes up into my brain because, right. you know, the, the yeah. whole, the, oh, it's such a great book for anybody who has not read it. Ahmed Zadawi. Yes, go read it now. I go read it now. It's, read it now. it's the most interesting. It's just like using stories that are known internationally yeah. and talking about politics and 
Oh, mm. it's so good. It's a great book. But yeah, I think it's what we do as Arab writers to use stories like intertextually. Mm-hmm. I just have I don't know if I've ever come across a Arabi book that doesn't do that. Like, did you did you feel like it was a conscious decision for you, or did you just kind of like that's just how it how it is? Because for me, I was like, this is just how writing works. Yeah, it kind of manifested it on its own. Yeah. Like, I won't say it was like I was going out of my way to write this story. I guess I mean a lot of it has changed a lot since its since its inception. But yeah, so like the first iteration was meant to be this sort of satire, this sort of like comedy in in post nine eleven where Salim or Zid or whatever, and they're trying to they just like make a bunch of wishes that go completely off the rails. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember, um, I remember the first iteration of that. And yeah, the wishes that you were making. I like, I like it better that they go into the Jerry Callis. Yeah, so, so cute. Yeah, so like the more I like wrote, the more I'm like, oh, this is a better way to take this in this sort of direction. But yes, yeah, so like it has like undergone a lot of iterations, and especially like when I read like a thousand and one nights, and I'm like, oh, there's a lot of like play that I could do here. And then thinking about like how I grew up and like the Western stories that I grew up with, and I'm like, oh, there's a lot of integration that can happen here, and like cross cultural conversations can happen here. And like how storytelling is, I don't want to say it's the same across the board, but it's very so like a worldly thing. I mean, I guess we can like dissect this quote a little bit more. Talk a little bit about, I guess, like the traditions of storytelling and the idea of storytelling in, in the diaspora or the Arab world. So like, how do you, how do you see yourself in that role as a storyteller? It feels like a big responsibility. Oh, interesting. I feel like it's such a thing for us having a storyteller or like a storyteller in your life and like it's kind of a respected position as much as we were saying like being a writer is not respected being a storyteller it's not like financially respectable but it's like kind of a position with responsibility of like continuing the culture in a way Mm -hmm. i always liked the image of the storyteller the kind of hermity old lady that knows all the stories Mm -hmm. yeah and then shares the stories i kind of like I'm obsessed with that image a bit, right? but it doesn't feel that way uh, as like a writer here, mm-hmm. as part of the diaspora. You're, there's so much about being a writer that is all about like self-promotion and right. public opinion, all this stuff that I just like mm-hmm. never saw as part of being the storyteller mm-hmm. versus the Western concept of a writer. I can't see myself as the storyteller uh-huh. yet. I just haven't reached that. Okay. <laughs> what about you? What do you think? I think storytelling now, it's such an intimate role. You know what I mean? I do. I don't know if anybody else does, I don't know if but I do. It's, it's not. Because, like, in past, like, the Hakawati was. I was literally thinking the word Hakawati yeah. when I was just saying my. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, like, like, I, I knew what you're talking yeah, about. I knew I it was, like, Hakawati. And, like, so, like, the role of the Hakawati was, like, a communal thing. And it was a very important communal thing. And I still think it's a very important communal thing, but I think the stories that we're telling, especially because like we're writing about our experiences and our families, they're a different kind of story, I guess you could say. Because mm-hmm. like the storytelling of past, like the Hakawati and like that, those sort of stories were always very, I don't say general, but like they were about like the epics, right? Like mm-hmm. of like Arab folklore or like Arab stories. It became almost like a, like a telenovela, I guess you could say. Oh, it's like a telenovela. Again, I don't have like direct experience with Hakawati's or 
because uh, like we just filled the role of the TV essentially. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I don't have, I only have like third hand knowledge of like the hacker. I've read a couple of articles, and that's what, but I've never like had an experience where I've sat in a crowd and been told a story in that sort of communal fashion. Yeah. So I think that role has shifted quite a bit. And I do think that I'm a storyteller and I do think you're a storyteller, but not, not in that like Arab fashion. Yeah, not like the sense. traditional... Not in the traditional We're not Hakoatis. Yes, that's exactly what I was trying to say. Yeah. This is why translation is so hard. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you write, do so, you have like a moral in your mind that you want people to draw from your writing? Do you have like an interpretation that you are? Do you just... Are you kind of like, once it's done, it's in your hands mm-hmm. to the reader? How do you... How do you... I think morals are didactic, so I don't write with moral in mm-hmm. mind. I, I don't necessarily mean moral. I think more of like a mm-hmm. particular interpretation that you want people to take from your work, or do you just... Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like death of the author stuff. Oh, interesting. Well, I don't really believe in death of the author. Uh, I think death of the author, death of God, it's a very Eurocentric and very white philosophy. And it's rooted in white supremacy, is what I believe. Or how I interpret or that sort of stuff, right? Because... Mm-hmm. I don't know who that person was like, we, we killed God or something like Nietzsche. that. Nietzsche, God is dead. God is dead, we killed him, right? And I think that's rooted in, in like this weird colonialism that it's like, we are the greatest people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, Where it's yeah. like, there's nobody above us. Right. And we are gods. Yeah, oh, right? yeah, I agree. And so I don't believe that I can ever be separated from my... It's also like very fraught to be like, death of the author and the author is a person of color. <laughs> Yeah. Right. It's very icky. Yeah, it's very. There's a lot of there's a lot of politics there. And our experiences haunt our works like so so. Yeah. Exactly. We're not writing about hypotheticals. We're writing. No. No, we're not. Yeah, we're not writing about hypotheticals. We're not writing. We're writing our experiences Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I guess what I want want people to take away from my writing, especially like my fiction, I just want that first novel to be kind of opening salvo into Arab speculative fiction, but also Arab folkloric fiction, but also like Arab Western folkloric fiction, uh, where I incorporate other, you know, stories that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like I'm writing here, my stories take place in Treaty 6, or in Edmonton, or in Emiskwichi, Skyken. But like, how do I include indigenous representation? Because like, I know, I know people who, who write but then their stories never include indigenous people. But then, like, indigenous people are always there, if that makes sense. Like, when I was growing up, we had a hookup, but I didn't know we had a hookup because, like, my dad never talked about it. But we had a hookup for smoked salmon through another Arab guy. But this Arab guy was friends with indigenous, uh, like, hunters, trappers, and fishermen. And so he would buy their smoked salmon or something like that. And I guess my dad would buy it from him or whatever. But, like, it was, like, a very direct link to the smoked salmon. But I, like, growing up, I never really knew where we got the smoked salmon from. And it's like, oh, shit. Um, so I'm starting to discover more. And it's like, oh, yeah, of course, the smoked salmon wasn't store-bought. Oh, it also, like, tasted amazing. Yeah. Um, thinking back on it. We um, also had a, a fish hookup. I sorry? don't know. I, I should ask where our fish hookup was from. <laughs> yeah. So I never really... I mean, like, growing up. I mean, as a kid, right? Like, I just... You don't think about it. You yeah. don't think about yeah. it, right? I was also in a Muslim community. So, like, indigenous people weren't really present. And so it's like, how do I... 
because again, I'm running a very like Muslim focused community in northern Alberta. Not northern Alberta, but like, I think Alberta. that's a great little anecdote. I think to like include into a story, just the the fish hookup. Fish hookup, yeah. That's it's great. <laughs> that's actually yeah. And so it's like I know moments like that. That, that I think that's that's good. You should try. I should try. I should see what I can put that in. Yeah. So like indigenous people are in the Muslim community as well. So there's like, you know, indigenous people who are converts or reverts or whatever you call, call them. And there's also like interactions between the Muslim community and indigenous communities. And I feel like that there's a lot there that goes untalked about. Have you ever met an indigenous person who was converted to Islam? Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, very interesting. So yeah, so it's like, I should include indigenous people in my stories because our people interact with indigenous people all the time. But yeah. I feel like, yeah, but I feel like it's not talked about. Never. It's never talked about. And I'm like, or it's never, or I don't think people write about it. Even like non Arab people, when they write their stories. It's like there's a list that is indigenous literature and yeah. then there's Canadian literature. Yeah. And they're just separate somehow. Yeah. So like, in, like they don't write in indigenous characters or indigenous people. And I wonder if like a part of that is just being scared of writing. Writing wrong. Sorry? Writing wrong. Like yeah, wrong. maybe. I don't know. Do you feel, do you like get that way sometimes when like writing characters? Yeah, like, yeah. Like, I get that way a lot actually. Mm-hmm. I just, you, you know, there's like a fear of misrepresenting. Like, you know, this is like an interesting conversation because I actually never really thought about my role in including indigenous characters in my writing. Because I have some stories that take place in Canada. There is a bit of fear, anxiety and misrepresenting, but I'm never anxious to misrepresent a white person. Do you know what I mean? Like we, because <laughs> I also have those same anxieties, right? It's like because like people tell you to write what you know. Well, I mean, I remember Marlon James came and did a talk here, and somebody had asked him how he's so good at writing women as like men, and then he was like, "Read women, just right. read from that point of view, and then you kind of start to understand." Mm-hmm. I mean, you'll never know what the experience is, right? But you can have an understanding of what, like, how to adequately represent this kind. So I know both of us do read kind of as much indigenous as we can. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that anxiety is so yeah. strong. Like I definitely gonna have indigenous characters in my detective fiction, but I do want to have like some kind of representation of indigeneity that's indicative of like my upbringing, whether it's in like the smoked salmon where I didn't know where we came from. I'm thinking of like having that Jin character greet them in like. Cree, because like we believe Jin can like speak any language. Like the Jin, that Jin is captured by Sadiq's father. Sadiq's father works in northern Alberta, and he captures him on, in the oil fields. Oh, so he's so like this Jin, yeah, has been living. Oh, know, he's not Arabic. He's not Arabic. He's a he's a Turtle Island Jin. <laughs> Interesting. That's actually a very neat. I'd like to see how you go about it. I'm if yeah, you can. Yeah, if I can. So like again, like the idea of representation. Right? And you don't know like, the intricacies of certain like you don't know the intricacies of culture. Like the way we were talking about yeah. translation with us. Yeah, so like the the intricacies of, of like creating a or not creating but like writing a gin. That's also has its complications because yeah. like we don't know what they sound like technically. Yeah. The only thing that we do know is that they form communities and they get married and they fall in love and they have children and that there's Muslim jinn, there's non Muslim jinn. They um, made the fire. Sorry, they're made of smokeless fire. And so, like, writing a jinn who's from Turtle Island, or, like, from Northern Alberta, there can be politics there that might be fraught, or... I don't know, you'll have to do some, some research. <sighs> yeah, I have to do a lot of research. 
<laughs> because like also from my my understanding of indigenous cultures they also like believe in spirits like we have like bakhur and then they have sage and they burn sage to like clear bad spirits and then we have bakhur to like dispel yeah. jinn and like invite yeah. angels so it's very i don't want to say it's the same but it's but, like very so this is another similar. thing when it comes to like our our communities yeah. when you're like when you point out similarities yeah and like spirituality mm-hmm. people are a lot more receptive like they're kind of like oh yeah i think like yeah finding common ground is very important right mm, i think you could do something really cool if you did the proper research obviously so we talked a little bit about your current work that's going to be published which is tales of the mountains and the sea and talked a little bit about your dissertation Maybe. it's called hollow bones okay i might change the title but yeah. the working title is hollow bones where do you see your writing practice going into the future like where do you see yourself after their dissertation comes next for you that's a great question so uh, there's something that my supervisor Suzette said and she was like there's gonna be a time that comes when you have to write outside of school and you've got to write pages yourself without a supervisor to tell you to write pages so I'm working really hard on doing like a more consistent writing practice mm. where I actually write at least every week um, life is busy I'm poor it's tough I'm kind of working on a bunch of things at once mm-hmm. my dissertation is just going everywhere and so I have like a couple stories that I'm working on and I want to do more writing on like diaspora in mm-hmm. Canada um, which I guess is what you do I kind of want to bring it back a bit I have this one story that I want to try change, turning into a, a novel, like a novella, maybe. Okay. The working title is called Let Us Out. I actually had written it for my first year of undergrad. I wrote this short story, mm-hmm. and it was called The God of Small Things, just before I had known that that was a book, that was a an incredible yeah. book. It's about a 12, 13-year-old girl mm-hmm. who has just moved from Lebanon in 2006 during the, you know, yeah. the Harib, and she hates it in Canada so it's kind of contesting that like grateful immigrant story so I I have some cousins that came around that time and they hated it and most of my family hated it when they came here to be Mm -hmm. honest and it's like she's just she resents everything and and it's like a difficult time Mm -hmm. Um, and she kind of has a control problem and in her way of coping with her trauma she collects animals and okay. believes herself to be their god. And her dad has died, and it's a story about her and her mom basically figuring out life, but she's mm-hmm. got this like god complex going on. Right, yeah. It was a short story at first, mm-hmm. but the ending just didn't didn't hit right. Right. So I'm going to try and turn it into a novella, I think. Yeah, The Grateful Immigrant. I hate or that the, narrative. The narrative of The Grateful Immigrant I just hate it. is... And you're like somehow not allowed to complain when you're like, I really wish that my family didn't have to leave. Yeah. People are like, you should be grateful that you're here. Yeah, like grateful to what exactly are you being grateful to? I'm grateful to the indigenous peoples yeah. that have allowed us to live on their land. Sure, yeah. Allowed, I guess. Well. Not necessarily, but but am I grateful to white people who basically fucking started the war that made me be here? No. I think what a lot of people don't recognize is that these cataclysmic events aren't just moments in time. They're more like reverberations. Mm-hmm. So like they don't see the reverberations. They only see like... The event. The event. The As moment. one event, yeah. The moment, the moment, the moment. And nothing is a moment in a vacuum. No. 
Okay, so same question to you. What's next for you? I do want to write another chapbook of poetry about like food and war. They're very interesting. Just speaking on food, if there are any Arab listening. Ahmed doesn't like what I know. I find it to be too... What's that word? He's wrong. He's objectively wrong. I am subjectively correct. <laughs> <laughs> I find them to be too... What's it called? Bitter. Bitter. I don't know. There's all that, all that lemon juice and like the garlic. It just doesn't mix for me. And then like the leaf itself is bitter. So it's like... So, so delicious and sweet and tart. No, I'm not a fan of that. I don't know how you're getting tart from the leaves. The leaves are all so bitter for me. <laughs> you're whack. <laughs> So yeah, it'll be like another chat book. Food and more is, uh, I feel like it's my go-to. You don't have a title yet? I don't have a title. No working I don't know. title? I don't know working, I don't know. I'm thinking like something to do with like pomegranates and grenades. Be well, more lemon. That's what we call, that's <laughs> yeah. what we call you know. Yeah. Yeah, what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. You know. You're Lebanese too. Um, <laughs> so like then on my dissertation, which I have a detective novel. And then I'm thinking of like writing a sequel to that. To the death? To the disc, but set in Lebanon. I feel like there's a lot of like narratives of return in our community, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so my dissertation will talk a bit about that as well, about like this idea of return. I want my detective in that novel to solve the case and then to finish it off with him at the airport, heading quote unquote home, heading to Lebanon essentially. I want to write the next one in Lebanon, and then I want to write a dystopian future set in the Khalij. Oh, it's such a good setting for it's that show. That's but, like kind of yeah. what I'm doing right now. But but I also want to include the gin from the Jerry Can gin. Oh, is it? So what I'm what I'm trying spin-off? what I'm trying to do is to have like continuity in characters throughout these novels. So like the first novel will feature the detective. Okay, okay. But he's like a low-level like police, like I said, a beat cop in this novel, in this first one. Uh-huh. The, the detective fiction will reference that he found the boys. So he exists. Oh my gosh, so that's he exists. so good. Okay, 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 okay. So he'll exist So you're like in... creating your own universe. Yeah. That's badass. Yeah. Okay. The okay. OCU. The OCU? <laughs> it's not even cinematic, you idiot. <laughs> no, um, that's good. No, that's good. No, I want to, because like the community is so small. Yeah, yeah, this is right. great. That's actually... The I, community is so tiny. I don't know if it's because, you know, just like 90s kids things, but mm. man, when other characters appear... What are they called? Uh, uh, oh, oh, shoot. Crossovers. Crossover, yeah, the I crossover. crossovers. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so, like, I want there to be, like, this little crossover kind of thing going on, because, like, the community isn't big. No, it's tiny. So, it's, like, it only makes, it'll make, it makes sense. Yeah, it does. To it have, does like, characters in different sense. stories within those stories. So, I'm going to have the boys disappear, essentially, a couple of days before now. So, they'll, like, disappear on the Sunday. Yeah. And then they'll be, like, disappeared until, like, the Wednesday. So, they miss the event. And there's, like, a whole theory behind them missing it. But, essentially, they miss it on the outside but then they're like in this jerry can with this gin but then like the the world of the gin kind of crumbles as well at the same oh. time as 11 happens so instead of being traumatized by that they were traumatized they were traumatized by, the by like the, the destruction of the jerry can right, and like right, right. the disintegration of it it's fantastic this beat cop finds them in the forest because like that's where they end up somehow he discovers where they are and he brings them back to their families and so yeah so like this idea of just having this continuity of characters yeah 
throughout. That's great. And then, so it's the evolution of the community as well. Yeah, exactly. Very How it looks like between like the first novel, which is the Cherry Cat Gin, and the second novel is like the Initiative Cedars. She'll be detective fiction. So yeah, the third novel, Narratives of Return. You know how the community is. Back home is very romanticized by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And then when they go back home, and it's nothing like how they pictured it. They get so disappointed. They're like, this it's place so, smells like shit. It's so funny. Like, yeah, like, we don't have garbage disposal. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of like romanticization in the community. So like, yeah, I'll have a bit of that in this in the detective, the first detective fiction novel, like this romanticization. And... Because, like, Osama had, like, dropped off from the community, especially because, like, post 9-11 and, like, him as a police officer. Yeah, that's it's tough. It's, like, you that's know, working spot. and with, again, like, the what colonizer. Year, what year does your desk take place? Uh, modern, 2022. Oh, okay, like, okay. The very, and like, then... Yeah, because, like, he's now a PI. Because okay, so he's gone Jerry through, then, like, yeah, the RCP. Jerry and... Takes place in 2001. Yeah. And then the next one in the series. Yeah, it'll be, like, modern. Will be modern. Yeah, because he's a PI now. And then when will the next, when will you set the return home? Next next year, year, like the following year. Yeah, so like it'll be, yeah, so it'll be like, let's say, the the first detective novel begins in 2022. Well, not even like next year, it'll be like the same years. Yeah, right, because it'll be, so it'll be like very modern, so they'll have like smartphones and like that sort of stuff and like cars. Gadgets and gizmos. (laughs) Yeah, gadgets and cars, because that's very modern. (laughs) (laughs) No, but like in, in terms of like you know like yeah. cell phones and like uh, modern surveillance techniques and, and that sort of stuff, and so like it'll take place in the same kind of few months or few days. I, I don't know how long it's gonna take him to like solve this case of a missing person. I haven't gone that far in that in that thought thinking about that yeah. story just yet. So yeah, he'll be reconnecting with the community, and then so I need to go back home. Interesting. And, is the back home going to be just sad and disappointing or... I don't think so. No, it's just going to no. be what it is. Okay. It's just going to be what it is. You know, it's going to be sad, it's going to be helpful, it's going to be joyful. It's going to be a bunch of stuff. Because like, there's still joy and misery, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> People are still joyful in Lebanon, I'm sure. So joyful. So joyful. Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it sure does. It checks out. It does check out. <laughs> So yeah, I'll have yeah the second novel set, and then when I finish that one, I'm gonna write the dystopian one set in the Khalij, like many, 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 many years in the future, like maybe like 100, 200, 300 oh. years, like very. Like, You're thinking we're gonna make it that long? Very forward thinking. Okay, okay. Yeah. but it's dystopian. Okay. Yeah. If the apocalypse started happening, would you want to yeah. be like the first to die, or do you want to survive with that? I want to see it through. I want to see what's at the end. Oh man, I'd check out so fast. <laughs> I'd check out so fast. I'd be like, alright, I'm out. I kind I'm just curious. I just want to see. I just want to see it. See what's going on. I don't have the energy. I don't know, cause like the idea of the apocalypse is very interesting. Yes. Like people have survived apocalypses. Technically, our people have survived apocalypses. I, I was thinking something more cataclysmic. Yeah, but like colonization was cataclysmic. Yeah, but something more like. Like worldly destructive. Yeah, like okay. a dick of meteor just. Shredded the earth to bits. Well, Nidor would kill us all, so. Okay, okay. So, something like massive flooding or like at the same time as like giant Mm. fires and. Yeah. You know, those kinds of environmental destruction. I just wouldn't want to. Huh? It's kind of happening too. I know. Yeah. That's what I'm telling you. I'm out. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You're out now? (laughs) Peace. Thank you for having this conversation with me. Uh, thanks for sitting down and talking to me as well. This was lovely. It was great to talk about anything and everything, Every, I guess. Literally everything in I the feel, planet. I feel like, yeah. yeah, that we talked about so much. Thank you for joining us. Brian's. Thanks for having us to Tea House. And thank you to the listeners.
hope you enjoyed this conversation between Daniel Idris and Omar Ramadan. I'm Shu Yin Yu, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are located, as well as the guidance of Mark Stucco at the Taylor Foundry Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Micah Jacobson, Rebecca Galeen, Mahmoud Abne, Ryan Stern, Shu Yan Yu, Mark Lynch, Shazia Hafiz Ramji, Benjamin Gan, and Amy LeBlanc. Our music is Monarch of the Street by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.teahouse.ca. That's www.teahouse.ca. If you would like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. That's T-I-A-H-O-U-S-E-Y-Y-C at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.